welcome to the ALC Pan-African Radio's public debate program. This program engages experts and an invited audience to discussions around cross-cutting issues on peace, security and leadership in Africa. Under the title Continuities and Discontinuities in Africa, Governance, Development and Regional Peace and Security, the Africa Leadership Center recently held its third annual Peter da Costa Lecture. The keynote speaker was Professor Chidi Anselm Odinkalo, international human rights lawyer and professor of practice, the Fletcher School at Tufts University in the USA. You can listen on the ALC PanAfricanRadio.com and the full lecture is available on the ALC's YouTube channel. Good evening. And, uh, you know, where we come from, sisters hold down the foundations. And when uh, your sister is also your ogre, you know you're in trouble. And uh, when you've been set up by your own ogre sister, your trouble knows no bounds. I'm glad to be here. I should like to begin by saying, even if it is sobering to be here, and I'll try and explain why it's sobering. In July, 1992, well, second week of July, 1992, I went for a meeting in uh, Banju, the Gambia. It was called by Andrew Coyle, who then never foresaw that he was going to have a distinguished second career at King's. He was then the governor of Brixton prisons and Vivian Stern, who's now Baron of Stern of Vauxhall. And it was a meeting about reforming prisons globally. They called it in the Gambia for a very small cohort of folks because they wanted, the idea was let's try and do something useful with our time. And so I get to the meeting and after the first day, uh, we were to have a reception in the evening. So, I go to the reception and I'm loafing around in these khaki shorts and, and loafers actually. And um, I, I hear, first I hear a voice and then I realize somebody had tapped me, you this man. I look around and, and you know, the voice could only have come from one person. And he says, come, I want to introduce you to your sister here, all you Nigerians. So I look behind me and there was, Peter Da Costa. And um, he introduced me to somebody, a woman. As I said, that was July, 1992. And uh, I would go on to set up a home with that woman. And uh, we'd go on to have two delightful children who um, called Peter uncle even to today. So Peter got me married up, even when he was reluctant to get married. And Peter introduced me to my wife. That's how long we'd known one another. And that's how close the families were. So when my august sister Fumi asked me to join in this, encounter today, it was impossible to say no, just as it was impossible to say yes. Uh, because Peter was so luminous, it's difficult to do him credit fully 
in any gathering. And I consider myself entirely unqualified for that purpose. What I am doing here today, therefore, in a sense, is to pay tribute to one dimension of the multiple dimensions that Peter represented. And uh, Shivai was talking about the exchanges we were having on a platform last night about Peter and just the testimonies across the board that people shared um, of the things he did and how he did them, how those things came so naturally to him. Um, and as we discussed this, it, it made so much sense to build the conversation, at least my own contribution to it today, around the theme of connections, because Peter was a connector of so much. He connected people, he connected ideas, he connected geographies, um, and he just made our relationships to so many difficult things seem so easy and so seamless. And it's also symbolic somewhat of that idea of connections that we are here today having basically all over the world being part of this conversation and this event from different spaces and, and sharing testaments and testimonies to what Peter did for all of us. And um, uh, they've been mentioned here, but I think it's all, all just proper to remember and acknowledge uh, Chiru and Yasin and Yara and the rest of Peter's family. And uh, I'm glad to see the colleagues in uh, Nairobi. Uh, I was in Nairobi yesterday, and I, I think it's only fair that um, I join this from here because otherwise Nairobi will have a monopoly so that at least we share the spaces. Uh, and when we were discussing what to talk about, as I said, the theme of connections made sense to me. Uh, and it's somewhat coincidental that this gathering takes place the week after the agreement between the warring sides, how so many sides you wish to acknowledge is up to you, but between the significant sides in the Ethiopian conflict. Because that's where, in a sense, this story of connections begins. And the idea of connections also is centered around the kind of work that the ALC is doing, and, and to whom I must also pay considerable tribute, not just in the work is doing around leadership and forcing the issue of leadership for our continent onto the agenda, but producing and inspiring also a different cohort, a different cohort of leaders, uh, hopefully, who are going to be there long after many of us have become fossil fuel. But there is something about the Ethiopian agreement that should remind us about continuity and discontinuities in Africa. The agreement was mediated, the lead mediator, uh, under whatever nomenclature you wish to call them, is President Obasanjo, who is from Nigeria. Now, President Obasanjo began his career. He's the most experienced African statesperson alive, Bannon. He began his career in the Congo in 1960. He was a peacekeeper, having been commissioned as a military officer in 1958. He was nearly killed in the Congo, but that's another story, not necessary for this particular encounter. And then his career took off in the Nigerian Civil War. 
He's reputed to be the officer who ended the Nigerian civil war. But what many people don't know is that the mediation of the Nigerian conflict was led by the late emperor of Ethiopia, Haile Selassie. And that's where the relationship goes back to. So fast forward 52 years after that war in Nigeria, he's called upon to mediate the war in Ethiopia, who mediated the war in Nigeria 52 years before that. A lot of people who do not know this story would wonder, so what is Obasanjo's interest in Ethiopia? And the fact of the matter is that when the emperor returned in May 1941, after the events of 1935, the regiment that welcomed him, that took him into Addis Ababa was a Nigerian regiment. And when you go to Addis Ababa, you will see some of the Nigerians, the graves of some of the Nigerians who fought to restore the Ethiopian monarchy in 1941. And that's really where I want to begin. Our interconnectedness as Africans, which is somewhat unknown to a lot of people. And today, we get stuck in notions of a new patrimonial African exceptionalism, emblematized by the expression African solutions to African problems. And when I talk about continuities and discontinuities, I, I want to suggest that we need to begin to interrogate the notion of African solutions to African problems and ask the question, what is an African problem? When did it begin to be an African problem? And how do we recognize something as an African problem? And if, if it is not an African problem, but just a problem inside Africa, those are two different notions. An African problem and a problem with a loci or with multiple loci inside Africa, how do we address them in the world that we live in? Because that is central to the current crisis of multilateralism. And Peter, I believe, laid the foundations for this in his PhD dissertation. And I do hope that someday, soon enough, that work will be published because it deserves to be. Um, where in his exploration of agency in Africa's governance and development, Peter addressed some of these issues, um, which for me is very important. And, and he was engaging with the polarities that kind of confound us in this debate between hegemony and neo-patrimonialism um, you know, that that's been there in African studies uh, for, for a long time, um, and suggesting we need a lot more nuance uh, and granularity uh, in all of that. But he also talked about the multiple dimensions of Africa and said, Africa has long been an idea, an invention of Western scholarship dating back to Greek times. Centuries of imaginings have constituted and shaped it in a particular way. Its territory, people, and economy designated as objects of intervention. The invented Africa has served as a metaphor of absence, a dark continent against which the lightness and whiteness of Western civilization can be pictured. I, I, I get to listen a lot to social scientists and all the ism and schism. Um, that make debates amongst them fascinating. But at the end of the day, I'm the son of a 
basic education teacher. My mother taught English language. And she said, she always said one thing, don't ever allow the adjectives to get ahead of the verbs. And so, and I come here as a former lawyer. I failed as a lawyer. And it strikes me that always the easiest way to get around to addressing issues is through stories. And this question of Africa's continuities and discontinuities and the issue of what is an African problem, I want to address three dimensions to the African story. Companies, cases, and communities. For anyone who wants to understand the origins of Africa's problems, I would recommend a course in company law. Very easily. Africa's story is the story of company law. Pretty much every one of us began, every one of our countries began in company law. And today, rather interestingly, we have a debt overhang from our countries going to borrow from overseas companies. All these bonds that are being issued left, right, and center. And so that, uh, there's an escalation. The de Africa sovereign debt crisis, which is unfolding as we speak, is partly a crisis of debt in private hands. And that trajectory has unfolded over about 137, 138 years, 137 years ago. This month, 137 years ago, a bunch of white guys gathered in Berlin to decide how to cover the lands of places that they had never been to and they didn't know about. That was the beginning of the Berlin West Africa Conference. And three years after, three months after that, in February, 25th of February, 85, 1885, they concluded the meeting with the Berlin Final Act, which allocated and apportioned uh, various territories to several of their countries. What then followed? In 1886, and I'm going to illustrate this with just the British territories. Uh, we could go on with many others, um, say the French, for instance. I don't want to go to the Belgians, um, but we may mention that. But if we stick with the Brits for a moment, in 1886, the Brits licensed the Royal Niger Company, Tomangoli, to, uh, to take charge of West Africa. Two years later, they licensed William Mackinnon in the Imperial British East African Company to take, run their territories in East Africa. And the year after that, 1889, it was the turn of uh, Cecil Rhodes and his British South Africa company. Now, let me read out to you what the Royal Charter, the objects and purpose clause in the Royal Charter of each of these companies read. And I said, uh, let me quote. They were to undertake and carry on the government or administration of any territories, districts, or places in Africa, and generally to exercise all rights and powers, all rights and powers granted by or exercisable under the charter 
and particularly to improve, develop, and cultivate any lands included within the territories of the company, to settle any such territories and lands, and to aid and promote immigration, to grant lands for terms of years or in perpetuity, and either absolutely or by way of mortgage or otherwise. Basically, they ran us. They were the sovereigns. And as the sovereign then desired to assume responsibility at the turn of the century, at the end of the Boer War, effectively, following the, after the death of Queen Victoria, um, the question arose who had control. And this then went up for determination in a very important case. Now, if you recall, Peter talks about the invention of Africa, which of course is an entire tome by Budimbe Valentine. But really the invention of Africa was not done by social scientists. And no, it wasn't because we are told that Livingston, you know, they told us in primary school that Livingston discovered Victoria Falls and Mongo Park discovered River Niger and they were discovering us left, right and center, right? No, it was actually set up by law. It was set up in jurisprudence through the cases, companies' cases. And if any of you would like, please do read the case of Southern Rhodesia. That was the place where the invention of Africa became law. And it was a dispute over who had rights to land allocation in uh, what is now Zimbabwe, in, in Southern Rhodesia, between the British Southern Africa, South African Company and the United, and the Crown in the United Kingdom, referred to the Privy Council in 1914. And it came up for decision in 19. 18 and some, you know, between 1918 and 1919, pretty much, our fate was sealed. Uh, it wasn't necessarily in the Berlin Final Act. It was from Berlin Final Act, it became law between 1918 and 1919. Now, there were five things that the Privy Council did in, um, in Southern Rhodesia. Uh, and really, my point about continuity and discontinuity is if we're going to resolve Africa's crises, multiple crises, we are going to have to undo those five things. Number one, he wiped out, the Privy Council wiped out the legitimacy of African leadership. How? This is the sentence from the judgment in Southern Rhodesia. No principle of leg legitimacy attached to the dynasty of Lobengula. The present case accordingly raises no question of white settlement amongst aborigines destitute of any recognizable form of sovereignty. We are without rulers. We are without legitimate leadership. Number two. it created a dependency. So when people talk about dependency theory, it was created by law. How? Quote, 
by the disinterested liberality of persons in this country. Their lordships had the advantage of hearing the case for the natives. Natives, all of you. Who were themselves incapable of urging and perhaps unconscious of possessing any case at all. We were incapable of urging and even worse, unconscious of urging any case at all. That was just the second. There was a third. They went after the his our history and memory and obliterated it. And here's the majesty of Lord Sumner's work on our history and memory. Whether the Matabele or the Mashona of today are in any sense consistent with the transmission of or descent of rights of property, identical with the Matabele or the Mashona of more than 20 years ago is far from clear. And the fate of the Makalakalas and the Maholis, once the slaves of Lobengula is as obscure as their original rights. You have no history. Number four, having destroyed our history, our memory, our leadership and everything, they spent just two short sentences wiping out our humanity. Uh, I want to insist on, I will keep reading him. He said, some tribes are so low. This is the one that most people will, will remind you of. Some tribes are so low in the scale of social organization that their usages and conceptions of rights and duties are not to be reconciled with the institutions or the legal ideas of civilized society. Such a God cannot be bridged. And then he delivered the coup de grace, which was what? They invented the invention of Africa. Because that really, the invention of Africa required the destruction of our history, of our leadership, of our capacity, and of our humanity. Having done that, therefore, what was left? By the will of the crown and in exercise of its rights, the old state of things, whatever its exact nature, as it was before 1893, has passed away. This is very biblical. And another, and as their lordships do not doubt, a better has been established in lieu of it. Whoever now owns the unalienated lands, the, native, the natives do not. Five things were wiped out in one judgment. And so Africa was invented not just as a matter of social science, but as a matter of legal doctrine. We did not exist. Our leadership did not exist. Our history did not exist. And oh, our lands were unoccupied. So they could occupy it and they could allocate it amongst themselves. And the second dimension to what happened the following year was in the League of Nations Covenant. If you go to Article 22 of the League of Nations Covenant, you'll find a very exciting, a very exciting provision. To those colonies and territories, which as a consequence of the late war 
have ceased to be under the sovereignty of the states which formerly governed them. Now, listen carefully. And which are inhabited by peoples not yet able to stand by themselves under the strenuous conditions of the modern world. There should be applied the principle that the well-being and development of such peoples form a sacred trust of civilization. The best method of giving practical effect to this principle is that the tutelage of such peoples shall be entrusted to the advanced nations who by reason of their resources, their experience and their geographical position can best undertake this responsibility. I'm not making this up. This is real. This was treaty law. And you know, when, as I said, when I listened to the conversations between hegemony and neo-patrimonialism, I, 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 I wonder why they don't want to read this kind of stuff. This was treaty law. And this treaty law made, so first Africa was invented in law. Second, dependency theory was grounded in law, in, in multilateral treaty. And you know, again, a second coincidence. On this day, 10th of November, in 1995, the government of Nigeria executed Prince Harawa. That was company and case coming together. Company was shared. Case was the prosecution, in quotes, of Kensarawa was sentenced and with eight others to die for a crime that they did not commit and in respect of which they did not have a right of appeal. Before the records could be compiled, they were executed. And the resilience of the pathologists that have defined Africa's problems over the years since Berlin has been very consistent and very constant. And when you look at those pathologies, you will see the persistence of companies, you'll see the persistence of cases, you'll see the persistence of communities. The first two being used to wipe out, constrain, limit, or destroy the third. And the, obviously you cannot talk about all of that domination without talking, acknowledging resistance. And the resistance goes back, however you want to look at it. it uh, it's not just the African women who resisted uh, Mau Mau, for instance, and who came to the UK to fight their case. Uh, as recently as, what, 2012, 2013, I believe, the decision of the High Court here. Um, uh, um, the, uh, and that goes back, you know, if you, again, if you go to the reports of decision-making by the Privy Council, you'll see that. Uh, the case of Amadou Tijani, which arose, again, goes back a long way before Amadou Tijani was decided by the Privy Council in 1921, which was two years after the League of Nations Covenant was adopted. But it began with the decision by the uh, government, the, the pre-colonial government of Lagos um, to build water supply, provide for water supply, taxing the locals to pay for the Europeans to drink water, pipe one water. Those who live in Lagos will know this as the origin of what is called Iju Water Works. That was 1907. 
And Lagos, Lagosians rioted. So it was called the Lagos Water Riots. And as a result of the Lagos Water Riots, they introduced sedition laws across the colonies, uh, the territories as sedition ordinance. But there was something else that happened. They decided that it was the local chief, the Leko, who caused that problem. And that began cascaded into another problem over land rights. And that was what ended up in the Privy Council in 1921, when the Lagosians won some compensation over colonial acquisition, compulsory acquisition of Lagos lands, which was a little bit of an exception to the principle in Southern Rhodesia, because for the first time, they were recognizing that the colonized people were capable of having landed property. But that was because the local chief in that case said over my dead body. So when they discovered they could not do anything about it, in 1925, they banished him and exiled him to Oyo in, uh, in the north of Yoruba land within Nigeria right now. And having banished him, he said he wasn't going to go without fighting. So he sued them, asking for exactly the same rights that they gave their own people, the rights he, he sued them in habeas corpus. And when he sued them, they used all manner of technicality, but the man kept going to court. They would throw him out of court. He would hire new lawyers and keep going to court. In, he, he was banished and replaced. And in 1928, he came to the Privy Council and he won on a technicality. When the chief who had been reused to replace him heard the story, he drank poison and killed himself. But something happened with that because all of a sudden, people realized they could fight the white person with the white person's law. And that began to change organizing against colonial authority in many ways. But something else also did happen. People realized that collaboration with colonial authority paid. And that line between collaboration and resistance has been continuous and consistent till date. Uh, African relationship with the West has been defined by resistance and collaboration. And that is why the idea, this dichotomy between neo-patrimonialism and hegemony sometimes doesn't make sense because in reality, we all are, all of them are represented in the same sets of people. So let me try and start winding up. Why, why am I telling all of this story? Because in the end, uh, sorry, I was, I've got written remarks which I'm going to uh, email. Uh, so a lot of this, all of these stories are in uh, are written down and the sources you can get from when, when you get that. All of these stories actually consistently show a thread in our relationship to the West. And, and today we are faced with a lot of problems as a continent, which in many ways, are contemporary forms of resilient challenge. They have never really ended. Uh, you know, as I said, Peter talks about decomposing agency. You know, the, I mean, he's, his chapeau is the rule of experts, but really he was interrogating, he was, the, he, he was looking at agency in Africa. And that agency, African agency, has always been challenged in many forms. So we become independent and 
the thing that challenges African agencies which it considers the preservation of colonial boundaries. The fact that Namanga uh, is one community divided up in two countries, Namanga North in uh, one country in Kenya and Namanga South in Tanzania. Uh, and that, you know, the people know one another, but, but they've been carved up. Busia is not much different. And you can name so many other communities like that. And so we are faced with a challenge of integration. And yet, when you look at Africa's history of integration, you see it's also a challenge because just two months after we reached the OAU Charter in 1963, we also agreed to the Yaoundé Agreement with Europe, right? Now, the Yaoundé Agreement was put together in order to ensure Africa's continuing dependency. So first of all, we consecrate Africa's invention in law. Two, we create Africa's dependency as a matter of multilateral treaty. And if you go to Article 76 of the UN Charter, it's not much different. So uh, the fact that I say uh, the League of Nations Covenant does not mean it therefore went away. From mandates, they became trusts. Okay? Now, and that dependency we then voluntarily acceded to in the Yaoundé Agreement, which became the Lome Convention, which became the Cotonou Agreement. And that guaranteed that we were only ever going to be good at supplying to the Europeans primary products in return for them giving us what they called aid. And then the Nigerian Civil War happened and Nigeria discovered that it needed its neighbors and so started pushing for regional integration. And in 1975, ECOWAS constituted a breach in the OAU's doctrine of non-interference. But look at what happened between 1975 to 1981. In 1975, 1974-75, the Iberian dictatorships collapsed in Spain and Portugal. 75, ECOWAS was created. 76, Cape Verde, the former colonies of Portugal joined ECOWAS. 1977, the East African community was dissolved because Idi Amin and Julius Nyerere hated one another. And Nyerere refused to allow Idi Amin to come to Arusha to attend any summit. So we were pushing an agenda of integration, but the existing structure was being dissolved. 1980, we adopt the Lagos Plan of Action while the East African community had been dissolved. 1981, the Berg Report recommended integration as Africa's pathway to development. Meanwhile, it did not say anything about the Yaoundé Agreement or the Lumi Convention. How was Africa going to integrate successfully if you had the Yaoundé Agreement and the Lumi Convention guarantee that we were going to be producing as Europe's slaves? But these just oppositions you will not see unless you actually have to read Africa's history as a continuum, as a continuity. And you can go on and on and on. So when my colleagues from in human rights, for instance, and I want to end here so that we can have a conversation, when my colleagues on human, in human rights 
get irate about the ransacking by the countries of the Southern African Development Community of the, of the SADC Tribunal following the decision in the Campbell case, in the land claims, land reform case in Zimbabwe in 2008. What is the problem? We are doing human rights without a sense of history, without an obligation to our ancestors. Because we started off as territories of companies. And in 2008, a company that had benefited from those things that happened then wants to come and use our law to continue to sustain its domination. That, you don't have to like Robert Mugabe. Most of us don't. But there was something about that that was violent. And the last story I want to leave here is a small nugget. When its royal charter was revoked in 1899, Royal Niger Company got a compensation of 885,000 pounds. No small change, by the way. The British South African Company made it 3.5 million pounds plus 2 million in waivers. Pounds in money of that time, not money of today. Now, it was then, it then evolved into Unilever. And Unilever had a subsidiary called the United African Company, UAC. And UAC, Royal Niger Company had begun as UAC, United African Company in 1879. Unilever took over the assets of Royal Niger Company in 1931. And UAC was a subsidiary of Unilever. When the military were struggling for legitimacy and authority in Nigeria in 1993, guess what they did? They invited the managing director of USC to become the managing director of Nigeria. His name was Ernest Shoneka. Wherever you look in Africa's history, you will find companies. You will find communities struggling against companies. And you will find cases that dramatize the kinds of things that companies are used to do to communities. Today, it is an alliance of companies and politicians in a mutual admiration club with one another. The companies funding the politicians, the politicians funneling money into the companies, both of them doing away with our communities. And if we are going to try and break up this model of business, we are going to one, have to remember our history. But in doing that, we are going to have to go back and unravel those five things that Lansana did in Southern Rhodesia. Number one, restore legitimate leadership. Number two, restore our capacity as people. Number three, address and acknowledge our humanity as people. Number four, acknowledge our entitlement and agency to return to Peter's expression as a people. And when we have done all of that, number five, we'll have to return 
as Africans to acknowledge that we are the owners of our land and those who want to use our land should use it profitably while acknowledging our entitlement and overlordship over our land and assets in our land. Unless we do that, we will continue to replicate the problems we have and the continuities in our pathologies will remain impregnable. The actors that keep them, keep us where we are, implacable, and our challenges entirely insoluble. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Public Debate on the ALC Pan-African Radio. For this and other programs, please visit our website at alcpanafricanradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at African Leadership Center. You're listening to the ALC Africa Radio.